Good morning. And a special welcome to the Glee Bell Choir. That was beautiful. I, yeah, show them a little love. He actually made me a little tired. <laughs> oh. Well, this morning, uh, we're, we're entering the final, final uh, message on the, on the uh, Acts of the Apostles. And Luke, who wrote this as well, uh, Paul stated of his dear brother, he said uh, in Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician. And maybe sometimes it, it's kind of made me wonder about Luke and the fact that he was with Paul so much. And um, Paul needed a physician, didn't he? Because... Uh, of all that he went through. I can imagine, uh, I got to thinking about it about 1.30 this morning that Luke was probably, uh, Paul had him as his concierge physician. You ever think about that? Well, the fact is, uh, in Acts, really, there's two main characters in much of all that is written by Luke, our, our writer, and that is uh, on Peter, and then Paul. So the first 12 chapters really uh, deal with Peter and his work. And I'm reminded of those words, and you have heard them before too, in Acts 1 verse 8. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So starting at the end of chapter 12, that was when Paul's conversion, where he went from Saul to Paul on his, on his route to Damascus and the very fact that Jesus touched him. And then it uh, doesn't say a whole lot in Acts, but we know this, that for some time Paul then was in a time of reconciliation, time of repentance, a time of growing in his faith to what Jesus had for him uh, as he was called to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into Asia Minor and Europe. So last Sunday, Pastor Trent shared those words that uh, Paul was supposed to, as was prophesied, to present the gospel to the king. And he did, King Agrippa, and also the governor Festus. The fact is, uh, I was reminded of Festus' words because Festus didn't take so kindly to Paul, did he? And he said this in Acts 25, 12, and I shared this up by the office. I was trying to pretend I was calling it out. And when Festus said, to Caesar you have appealed and to Caesar you will go. I can only imagine as Paul heard that knowing full well what that journey was going to look like when he arrived at Rome. Maybe in the words of, uh, of Paul Revere, too, if too, if by sea. The fact is, Paul was ready to disembark in another journey via the water. And uh, historically, you should know the sea was not a friendly, noted as a friendly place for God's chosen people, the Israelites, the Jewish people. It was uh, the sea represented an abyss. It represented turmoil and chaos, the demonic 
and death. The fact is, you may remember in the Gospel of Mark when uh, Jesus healed the possessed man, that Gerasene demoniac. Do you remember what happened? Legion, the de demons, the main demon said to Jesus uh, to send them out in this, to send them out into the pigs. And so he did. And the pigs went off the banks into the sea, into the water, and they drowned. And from that start, even then, it reminded the people of the evil spirits that wanted to bring death and destruction. They finally got their chance. It seems Jesus allowed that to happen. So you could see the people could see the very thing that demons are, what demons are up to. They're up to assault people, just as they did the garrison man. They're out to steal, to kill and destroy, to steal our hope right? Kill our joy and destroy our faith. It reminds us and it reminded them not to trifle at all with evil spirits. However, Paul was no stranger to the water. He had already been in three times shipwrecked. And if you want to look more at what Paul's been through, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He shares where he had been imprisoned, how he'd had countless beatings, 40 lashes, less one five times, beaten with rods, and then even stoned. Paul had quite a, a life, didn't he? A man who was the Pharisee of Pharisees who lived a large, a man who was, all, though small in stature, was large and in charge in many ways. The fact is, shipwrecks were no stranger to him. As, uh, as they're ready to disembark, and I'll share the scripture with you in a moment, it's no surprise shipwrecks are not uh, unknown to us here as well, are they? Living uh, close to the shores of Lake Michigan and the Great Lakes. I can remember the time we got married. It was in the first week of November. No, I do remember the date. It was November 7. <laughs> Sweetheart. <laughs> but the fact is, it was a warm, warm day. I'll never forget it. I still remember how it was probably in the low 80s. It was warm out. And this was in November. There was a gentle, warm breeze, maybe much like Paul or Luke shares in, the gospel, in, in Acts, what we'll read today. But uh, it was the early evening, November 10th, 1975. The deck rails had been broken off the ship. The radar antennas snapped off. 35-foot seas and 70-mile-an-hour-plus gale force winds. With the last radio transmission of Captain Ernest McSorley of the Edmund Fitzgerald, telling Captain Jesse Cooper these words, we're holding our own going along like an old loafer. It was shortly after that, in a snow squall where they could not even see. 17 miles, only 17 miles kept them from safety at Whitefish Point. And all of a sudden, Captain Cooper and his crew could no longer see the infamous 
or carrier, the Fitzgerald. It was out of sight. It had gone down. Still today, probably those words, and uh, I don't think you guys know this in the bell choir, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> but the fact is, they still ring to many of us, don't they? You remember that song? I won't sing it. But uh, Gordon Lightfoot, that probably put him on the map. But the fact is, unlike the Fitz, the famous ore carrier, the Alexandrian ship and all the crew and prisoners that were with Paul were saved, unlike the 29 men who went to the depths of Lake Superior as their graveyard. So this morning, we're going to look at that account together, Paul's journey, his final journey, and what that looked like. So let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, and in the words, let the morning bring us word of your unfailing love, for we put our trust in you. And show us the way that we should go, and to you we will lift up our souls. And rescue us from our enemies, O Lord, for we hide ourselves in you. And teach us to do your will, for you are our God. And may your good spirit lead us on level ground. Lord, we thank you for the words here that uh, were inspired by the Holy Spirit, by Luke, your dear, dear child of the king, as he travels with his beloved Paul and makes this account for us, even today, to again be reminded that amidst, amidst the tumultuous, the storms of life, that there is a safe harbor, a safe harbor only found in you. So, Lord, bless this your reading of your word and the words that I share. May they be the words you have for all of us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you have your Bibles, this is, this is quite a passage. I, I didn't quite know where to end on this one. So, uh, we're going to go because part of it goes into chapter 28 as well. So... Let's look at this together. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adriamitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we were put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. I'll let you look at the first picture, if you would, if you'd show that. Um, I, it should come up on the screen. Is it there? Well, you know what? Then you don't have them. Okay. Thank you for your honesty. The next day, we landed at Sidon. And Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends. Right here is already a good example of hospitality. Julius liked Paul. Paul was a friend to him. And that is a consistent part of Paul's life, that the people he was around, other than the, the church leaders, the Pharisees, the chief priests, people grew to like him. So he allowed him to go to see his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. 
And when we sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Now, I had a picture of that Alexandrian ship for you to see. What you needed to know is that was a different type of ship than what he left in. Uh, the Alexandrian ship was one that carried grain and was, uh, would be more like almost what we'd say a, a modern today uh, Fitzgerald. It would carry grain and, and bring it to Rome. So uh, they changed ships. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lasea. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. This was about October 5, so it was, about, it was after October 5, which was the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. Now, here's the storm. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. And before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster we often have what we call along Lake Michigan the Northwester, don't we? That builds. It swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. And as we passed the lee of a small island called Kauta, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. And when the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. We really don't know what that looks like, and I've read about this. They don't know exactly how they got ropes under that ship, but somehow they were securing it more. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. And after the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. Now, he wasn't putting their nose in it. He was just telling them the very fact that they should have listened. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid. 
Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen. And just as he told me, nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So Paul shares with these folks on the ship, this Alexandrian ship, the, the regiment, the leaders, the pilot, all of those involved, we're going to be okay. I, I received a word from the Lord, an angel of the Lord. So here he is sharing the gospel in a way to these folks who really were not believers, certainly didn't believe in the God. And as you remember, the one God, Caesar was God to the Romans, and they worshiped many other gods. But on the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So what did the soldiers do? They cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. And just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. He said this, for the last 14 days, you haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need, a, you need to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Does that remind you of? Not a hair will fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. From Catechism, Heidelberg, question and answer one. After he said this, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God in front of them, all of them. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and, and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 on board. And when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. My friends, this is a great example. What did Paul offer them? They had communion together, didn't he? He broke bread and he blessed it. Wasn't that a beautiful picture? These are folks Paul embraced. He was called to embrace them. He was doing what God had told him, what the angel of the Lord had told him to do. Can you only imagine that these 276, most of them were probably paralyzed in fear, frozen, didn't even know which way to turn. And Paul was wise enough to tell them, you need something to eat. You haven't eaten for 14 days. You need nourishment. And when daylight came, now we continue with verse 39, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a, a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. The reason for it is if they would, they would then be under the threat of Rome to let the, their prisoners escape. But the centurion, now this is Julius, he steps in, he wanted to spare Paul's life. 
and he kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first to get to land. And the rest would get there on planks and on pieces of the ship. And this way, everyone reached the land in safety. Now, chapter 28, because this is really part of this too. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. Really, this is interesting. They built a fire and, uh, and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. What did Paul do? In verse 3, Paul gathered a pile of brushwood as well, and he put it on the fire. But then a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, from the, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from sea, justice was not allowed him to live. But sh Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall over dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said, he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, he placed his hands on him, and he was healed. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with all the supplies they needed. My friends, quite a, quite a journey, wouldn't you say? The fact is, uh, there was quite a, a tumultuous sea, and the people there, you have to remember, the, the way that they were navigating at that time, and many still do today, was celestial navigation, looking at the stars and the moon, the constellations. But remember this, it was dark, they were cloudy, it was a storm. They didn't see any stars or the moon for, for days. There was no way for them to navigate. But Paul became their navigator in many ways. The fact is, just as there were storms in the life of Paul and in the life of these people, Paul had a calmness that none of the others had. You see, Paul knew where his hope was found, and he trusted. Oftentimes in our life today, we think of the, and are faced with the storms of life. I think of what has happened over time in the country of Afghanistan. It's 99% Muslim. In 2004, five Afghan follow followers of Christ were killed. 2008, a British Christian aid worker there in Afghan Afghanistan was shot in front of her office. 2006, Abdul Rahman is sentenced to death for converting to Christ. Just a few short years ago, 10 Christian medical professionals were murdered while serving in a remote part of Afghanistan. Recently, one Afghan Christian is sentenced to death. Another is jailed for apostasy. 
In 2014, Werner Gruenwald and his two teenage children were gunned down inside their own home. All these folks, this is just a small example of those whose lives they gave. They were martyred because of their love for Jesus Christ. They knew that it was in him that they would put their hope and trust. Paul had that same hope. He knew that. And today, I will tell you, Afghan believers, there are more Christians that are becoming believers in that country. People are sharing the gospel boldly, just as Paul shared the gospel boldly wherever he went. He never stopped. Part of me was brought to this very fact that life is ministry and ministry is life. Someone once asked me, do you ever stop doing ministry? And I said, no, I can never stop doing ministry and you shouldn't either. See, that's what we're called to do. We're called to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Paul show, showed, I, I would say in a, in a beautiful way, was the very fact that his acceptance preceded obedience. He accepted the people. And we're a call to accept those around us. The fact is, we have tumultuous seas, though, right here in our greater community family. Just last, this past Tuesday, at this pulpit, we gave and celebrated the life of Vern Johnson. Just two weeks prior, we shared and celebrated the life of Jan Van Orman. Wednesday this week, this whole area was filled and almost, I would say, if we put everyone in that wing, it would have been filled. Here, Pastor Trent shared the message of his dear friend, Troy Doctor. I believe he was 48 or 49. We had that service here at Community. He shared the gospel in a bold way to a family and all the people that were here. And as Trent shared, Troy was a friend to many and a foe to none. I don't think I could probably say that maybe so much about myself. And maybe Paul couldn't because there are people who certainly didn't like him. But there was a hope, a gentle breeze. But then the storm came up. And again this week, we were brought to the passing of Rich Van Dam. Tomorrow here at 11 o'clock will be the service celebrating his life. A life of a man who, who knew his Savior and Lord Jesus. But the fact is, there's often a frigid cutting wind that seems to follow that gentle breeze. And we don't like it, do we? Face it, we don't like tumultuous seas and trouble. We think if we come to church, or maybe as we grew up, if we went to catechism and we went to church, some of us twice on Sunday, that everything should be good. Everything should just be A-OK. -okay. But the fact is, the brokenness of our life, the frailty of our bodies, our fallen sinful nature, which many don't want to acknowledge, but the fact is, we are broken, and I am one. We hear these words that uh, often are very sobering. Words that sometimes, um, I, don't like to, I don't like to hear these words. Words such as, 
the doctor that now puts words to what you have thought or believe was wrong with your spouse, that there was Alzheimer's or dementia? Or what about the return of breast cancer where it had been in remission for over a decade? How about hearing that, I'm sorry, you have the onset of Parkinson's disease? Or there's nothing else we can do. Your heart is failing. There's no other options. Or how about this? A young mother who was 36 was diagnosed a year ago with an aggressive cancer and after a multitude of surgeries and interventions, last week she went to be with Jesus. Three little children too young enough that they probably won't remember their mother. My daughter was with a family in Birmingham, Alabama this weekend to support them. This was one of our family members. The reality is we live in the midst of storms, don't we? And as believers, we're not immune to the struggles. We're not. The trials of life. And Paul shared in 2 Corinthians these words in chapter 12, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. God is sovereign. It's one of the, one of the key thoughts that comes out of this passage, the sovereignty of God, and that he can bring good out of difficult situations despite human errors despite the brokenness of our lives. Those 276 on board, as I mentioned, were probably paralyzed in fear in that storm. Fear that they couldn't follow the celestial bodies they normally followed, those that were in command of the ship. But the fact is, Paul received another course from another body, his Lord. The angel of the Lord gave him the course you see, what this revealed in Paul was a character reflecting a calm spirit during a fierce storm. This morning, some of you are living in a storm. I know that. Some of you may just feel that gentle warm breeze, not realizing what may lie ahead as a great nor'easter may well be developing in your life. The great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, shared this. He said this, when the tempest builds and the clouds become black and lowered, when the winds howl, that's when our heavenly captain is closest to his crew. So maybe that's what Paul wants us to see. I believe so. The fact that Paul, too, was in the midst of a storm, another storm. He knew he was going to Rome to ultimately be sentenced to death. Yet he remained faithful to the gospel. He was bold in its proclamation. Not just what he felt in his heart, but he shared it with his mouth. The fact is, he shared it with Julius, the centurion, the other guards, and I'm sure many of the other prisoners, because most of the people on that ship were prisoners. He showed hospitality to a people 
on the island of Malta. You see, the reality is that they probably only would have thought someone of a spiritual nature would help them if they paid them. That would be kind of the Buddhist or Hindu way. They would, they would expect we would have to pay you to do what you do. Paul did it because that's what he's called to do. He's called to give of himself. And so what did he do? He blessed them. He laid on his hands and he prayed for them and he healed them. The fact is Paul healed the father of Publius on an island as well as all those others that came to him. Paul reflected Christ even in this time of tumultuous seas in life. And I think it get brought me to the place where I understand maybe a little bit more about how Paul wrote in Philippians 4 when he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. And do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer, petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or seen or heard from me, put them into practice. And the God of shalom will be with you. You see, what Paul is sharing in those words is there is only one that is true. There is only one that is noble. There is only one that is right. There is only one that is pure. There is only one that's lovely. There's only one that's admirable. And there's only one that's excellent and praiseworthy. My friends, that's Jesus Christ. That's where Paul puts his faith. And that's where we're called to put our faith. So that we can say, we can rejoice in the Lord always. Even through tumultuous seas. The fact is, it's a difficult thing for us to think about, isn't it? We don't like it. Let's just face it. But the fact is, it's the reality of life. And I was brought to these words by a famous theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you may have read of him. He was a martyr, pastor, and theologian during the time of Hitler in Germany. He shared some of these words, and I want to share them with you, at a sermon he gave in London. He said, no one has yet believed in God, in the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick from that hour waiting and looking forward joyfully to being released from bodily existence. Whether we're young or old makes no difference. What are 20 or 30 or 50 years in the sight of God? And which of us knows how near he or she may already be to that goal? That life only really begins when it ends here on earth. 
that all that is here is only the prologue before the curtain goes up. That is for young and old alike to think about. We are so afraid when we think about death. Death is only dreadful for those who live in dread and fear of it. Death is not wild and terrible. If only we can be still and hold fast to God's word. Death is not bitter if we have not become bitter ourselves. Death is grace. The greatest gift of grace that God gives to his people who believe in him. Death is mild, death is sweet, and death is gentle. It beckons us with heavenly power if only we realize that is the gateway to our homeland. The tabernacle of joy, the everlasting kingdom of peace. How do we know that dying is so dreadful? Who knows whether in our human fear and anguish we are only shivering and shuddering at the most glorious, heavenly, blessed event in the world? Death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But that is what is so marvelous, that we can transform death, and that's by our faith. Those are some deep words, aren't they? But the fact is, as C.S. Lewis says, aim for heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim for earth and you'll get neither. The fact is, or the question may well be, where's your aim? How are we living? Are we living as Paul, that amidst the tempest, the turmoil, the, the storms of life, that we're called to have a calm spirit, a spirit that only comes from our faith in Jesus Christ? R.C. Sproul said this, we are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. Is he holding on to you? He's got me and I'm ready. But until then, we have work to do, don't we? We have a lot of work to do to share boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, we thank you. We thank you that uh, you called Paul, that you took a hold of him on that road, and that you opened his eyes to see who you were, and how you transformed his life, how he came to a place of repentance and reconciliation. The fact is, he brought the gospel to Asia Minor and to Rome. Yes, to Caesar you want to go, to Caesar you will go. Lord, help us to be bold to share the gospel in our lives in this day and in this coming week through the rest of our lives, Lord, that you have placed us here. May we be the salt and light you call us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll share these words. I'll share them tomorrow. And they're for us today. Words of Peter. When he said, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us new birth into a living hope.
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last day. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may suffer grief in all kinds of trials. This is so your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, is proved genuine and may result in praise, honor, and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you do not see him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you, my sisters and brothers, are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.